0: Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Biden says that Ukraine must be a strategic failure for Russia. Also, the U.S. House of Representatives has given the Pentagon $37 billion more than the president requested in his military budget. Joining us to discuss this and much more, we have Caleb Maupin. Caleb's a journalist and political analyst. Caleb, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. Caleb, before we get going, I understand your uh, Center for Political uh, In- Innovation is rolling. If you could tell tell people how to find out more about it and what you're up to.
1: Sure. Uh, well, our website is cpiusa.org. That's cpiusa.org. We're the Center for Political Innovation. We're a think tank uh, dedicated to uh, opposing imperialism and pushing forward uh, socialism with American characteristics. Uh, So we're looking to build a better country uh, and get out of these wars and start spending our money on building a better life for the people here. So uh, that's what we're all about. You can check us out.
0: Thanks a lot, Caleb. All right. A little less than three years after promising to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state over the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, President Joe Biden arrived in the kingdom Friday for meetings with Saudi leadership, including sharing a fist bump with the man accused of ordering Khashoggi's murder. Caleb Moppin, your thoughts on President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia?
1: Well, I'm sorry, but the hypocrisy must be pointed out, absolutely must be pointed out. So why are we having a problem on the global oil markets? We're having a problem because one of the top oil exporting countries in the world, Russia, is being barricaded and blockaded and you know run out of the world economy. We're told that Russia is invading Ukraine, and that's so unforgivable, and, and it's awful, and so therefore no one can do business with Russia. And that has driven the oil price and the gas price really high, and that's put Joe Biden in a bad situation. So... He's decided to go and, you know, check out and make up and essentially go and beg the king of Saudi Arabia uh, to pump more oil. Well, you know, that sounds nice, except for everybody knows that Saudi Arabia has been invading their neighbor Yemen since 2015. And the U.N. has condemned what they are doing in Yemen. Uh, And the uh, the international uh, bodies that observe are saying that war crimes are going on. The Saudis have been attacking their neighbor and invading their neighbor for well over a half a decade, and that's just fine. Uh, furthermore, people complain about human rights in Russia, they say that Russia's human rights are not good. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has no pretense of human rights at all. It is an autocratic monarchy, the kind of political system that went out of fashion in most of the world in the 14 or 1500s. Um, it's an autocratic monarchy, they just broke records, they're setting records now for public executions. Uh, they had 81 people got their heads chopped off in a single day recently. Um, you know, this is, this is quite, a, uh, quite an autocratic monarchy, quite uh, known for its crimes against its own people, especially the Shia Muslim oil workers. On top of that, uh, you know, they've been invading and attacking Yemen. They've killed thousands and thousands of Yemeni people. Um, and uh, I guess it's okay to go to them and beg them to pump more oil. It's okay to sell them weapons. It's okay to have a relationship with them because, uh, you know, Russia is so bad or something. I mean, this shows the hypocrisy, the blatant hypocrisy. Even if everything mainstream U.S. media said about Russia were true, it wouldn't logically follow that then we have to coddle and and kiss up to Saudi Arabia, which is what Joe Biden is doing right now. So, I mean, it just reveals that U.S. rhetoric is completely, completely bankrupt. Uh, And the fact that the U.S. media is not hammering him on this, in fact, they're doing the opposite. Uh, They've been highlighting Mike Pompeo, who is criticizing Joe Biden not for groveling before the Saudi autocracy but rather saying that he's been too harsh on them uh, and that that you know that he's been too hard on Saudi Arabia and we're losing them as an ally and we need to be nicer to Saudi Arabia uh, the tone of US media around this whole visit is is pretty ridiculous
2: Biden has repeatedly defended his decision to not only go to Saudi Arabia but to meet with Mohammed bin Salman maintaining that he wants to lead the region and not create a vacuum for Russia and China to fill. If you could speak to that, uh, along with, I want to say as late as last week, Joe Biden was saying, I'm not going to Saudi Arabia to meet with bin, bin Salman. I'm actually going to a international meeting where he will be in attendance. Well, that now seems to have changed since we've got photographs of Biden and Mohammed bin Salman fist bumping at the Al-Salam Royal Palace in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia.
1: Sure. And I mean, let's also add that this meeting is taking place. And Joe Biden, when he said he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, uh, he said that. But the only real stipulation, the, the only penalty he put on Saudi Arabia... Was that he said that the USA would no longer sell them offensive weapons. It would now only sell them defensive weapons. They would it would enable Saudi Arabia to defend themselves, but they would no longer be selling them offensive weapons. But if you look at, at you know weaponry, there's really no separate category. You know, there's no difference between a defensive gun and an offensive gun, a defensive bomb and an offensive bomb. Uh, you know, I mean, a defensive tank and an offensive tank. And so it was it was just a, a ridiculous ridiculous statement. He's saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, stop selling them this type of weaponry. But there's no distinction between the two. But now in the lead up to this trip, we have Biden announcing that he's considering getting rid of that regulation even. And so even this regulation that doesn't even really change the flow of arms to Saudi Arabia by the United States, uh, even that he's going to get rid of possibly as a favor to them. Now, Biden claims, uh, and they say, well, he's not going there to ask them to pump oil and deal with the oil prices. But everyone knows that that's what they're doing. Uh, And the White House press corps has, you know, kind of pressed the White House on that. And they insist, well, you know, he's not actually going to ask him to pump more oil. That's not what's going to happen. But but everybody knows that is what's going to happen. this is about the gas prices. This is about the fact that oil uh, from Russia has been pushed off the market. This is about the fact that the Saudis are refusing to ramp up production and making the gas price situation worse. And so, it's pretty clear the timing of the trip, et cetera, indicates that this is very much, very, very, very much about trying to get the oil price uh, back down. And, and as much as possible, because these gas prices are a nightmare for the Biden administration. That's what's going on here. And, I mean, the fact that, that, that we're doing this, that the United States is continuing to coddle the Saudi autocracy while, you know, chest-pumping and, or, you, know, uh, you know, pounding their chest against Russia and, and condemning Russia – I mean, it really just shows the hypocrisy. If there's ever been a a more blatant example of hypocrisy,
0: it's this. And and I'm with you on that, Caleb. I've always felt like this. Look, if, if the leaders of the country say, we do business with whatever country we need to do business with and we don't interfere in their internal affairs, that's perfectly fine. It makes sense to me that's business. I think the problem that a lot of people have is that the U.S. argues when it comes to one country, oh, we're all about human rights and and we don't want to do business and these people can't do this or that because they're not treating their people such and such. And then instances come come up like this wherein it is clear that that's all hollow rhetoric.
1: Absolutely. And and I mean everybody who looks at this situation is is going to feel that way. Um and the fact that US media is is doing the opposite that they're highlighting Republicans hammering Biden for saying he's too hard on Saudi Arabia and he's disrespected them and he's going to mend a relationship that should have never been damaged and I mean if that's the tone of the discourse in the US media, I mean that's particularly ridiculous.
2: The House passes an 850 billion dollar National Defense Authorization Act, adding $37 billion more than the Biden administration requested. And Garland and I say on the show all the time that there's this stereotype or this misnomer that the Democrats are the doves and the Republicans are the hawks. But here again, we've got a democratically controlled House of Representatives adding $37 billion to the National Defense Authorization Act, but they couldn't seem to find the money to get the bill back better planned through.
1: Indeed. And, I mean, that memo about Republicans being the hawks and Democrats being the doves, I mean, that's pretty outdated. If anything, you know, the Trump election seems to have indicated that at least among Republicans, the sentiment among rank-and-file Republican voters tends to be more anti-war other uh, than the sentiment among rank and file Democrats. Now, there's plenty of anti-war Democrats who just don't get what they want, and there's plenty of pro-war Republicans uh, who, you know, who do get what they want because Trump was very much a, a militarist president. He, you know, he attacked Syria. He murdered Qasem Soleimani. took us to the brink of war uh, on the, uh, you know, in, in, in the Middle East. And, and he was not a peace president by any means, but he at least presented himself as such in order to win votes. And so we're in a weird, weird political situation where it seems that the rhetoric of the warmongers much resembles the activist left. And that is probably the reason that we're seeing this weird dynamic, is that, that, you know, the rhetoric, it's not that we're going to rid the world from communism and and protect God and country from the commies and the reds like it was during the Cold War. Now the rhetoric is we're spreading human rights around the world. uh, We're protecting homosexuals. We are you know, we are attacking countries because their leaders are homophobic and sexist and racist, and Putin is a conservative, and, I, you know, this rhetoric, the rhetoric of the forces that are pushing for regime change and foreign intervention is much more activist left and liberal-oriented, and so because of that, the Demo- the Democrats seem to be the party that is more excited about foreign intervention, whereas the Republicans, it's more of this kind of, you know, I don't care much about the rest of the world. What about my own country? America first kind of old school isolationism, like we saw perhaps in the 1920s or or, you know, from from conservatives before the Cold War started. Um, So it's a it's a weird political shift. If anything, I think probably one of the primary factors is the fact that red states are economically suffering far worse than blue states are, and that the isolationism is rooted in, why don't we take care of our own people? We've got so many problems here. And that red states have been hit so badly that the people there are saying, I don't care about people in Iraq or people in Iran or people in, in, in North Korea. I'm more concerned about people in my neighborhood. And I think that, that it may be the economic suffering that is driving the isolationist sentiment in red states more so than in blue states.
0: On Thursday, President Biden reiterated that he wants to see Russia fail in Ukraine, declaring that Russian President Vladimir. Putin must suffer a strategic failure in his war. Putin's war must be a strategic failure. And the free world must sustain our resolve to help Ukraine defend its democracy. I guess that includes Saudi Arabia. I don't know. Saudi Arabia is not going along with them on that. Biden said at a joint press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, your thoughts on um, Biden's uh, 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 you know, belief that, uh, that Russia has to suffer a strategic failure.
1: Yeah. I Again, this is not realistic. I mean, the New York Times has come out with editorials basically saying it's not realistic. Others have come forward. The notion that you're going to drive Russia out of every inch of territory that Ukraine claims, from Crimea to the Donbass, Lugansk, uh, et cetera. I mean, it's just it's not going to happen, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. The, the Russian military is there. The population there is supporting the Russian military. There are governments there that have been in power since 2014, uh, that have the support of the population. It's just not going to happen, right? And that I think that on some level, Biden knows that's not going to happen because the the goal is not to actually resolve this conflict. The goal is to prolong it, to weaken Russia, to force Russia to spend lots of money, to use it as a a reason to push Russia off of the international oil markets uh, and the heating gas, et cetera. I think that that this war is, you know, I, I guess to quote George Orwell, the war is not fought to be won. Uh, I think the United States is prolonging the conflict in Ukraine for geopolitical purposes. They want to weaken Russia. That's what's really going on here, and that's why they're setting an unrealistic goalpost.
2: There are a couple of under a couple of <coughs> excuse me, other indicators to me that the objective is to prolong this conflict because one, Biden has has come out and said that. He's ready to back Ukraine for years to come. Secondly, they have not really allowed Ukraine to negotiate any type of of peace settlement with Russia. And three, Janet Yellen is trying to get Russia removed from the G20 summit. And those last two points say to me that if you aren't willing to sit down and talk with your adversary, then you're not really interested in finding any solution to the problem.
1: Indeed. And and they don't seem to be interested in finding a solution. They seem interested in a long term war. I mean, Yahoo News and others have revealed that the CIA was in Ukraine for a very long time, planning a long term war, training forces. They've got these fanatical ultra nationalist elements that uh, you know, those forces are not interested in uh, being in Ukraine temporarily. They're not interested in, in a stabilization operation. Those forces are waging an ethnic conflict. They hate Russians on an ethnic level. Um, and, I mean, you know, I wish the world, or at least U.S. media, would pay attention to what Russia has been presenting at the U.N., uh, because I have watched some some interesting U.N. meetings where they show video, interviews with civilians who have had their homes destroyed, interviews with members of this azov battalion and and in the fascist groups in ukraine confessing to war crimes you know they'll stop a ukrainian on the street and tell them to pronounce the word for bread um which you know if you come from a russian-speaking family it it sounds a certain way and if you come from a ukrainian-speaking family it sounds another way and if they pronounce the word for bread wrong they shoot them and execute them right there on the spot uh you know i mean what these forces are doing these are not forces that want to make peace and they've been trained by the american government they've been armed by the american government They are there to fight a long war. And really, these forces in Ukraine, different religion, different culture, different region, they're a lot like ISIS, right? I mean, the ISIS forces, they just want to kill, kill, kill. And, you know, and that's kind of what some of these fanatical nationalists in Ukraine want to do. They just want to kill, kill, kill. And uh, they're, they're not interested in bringing peace.
0: Speaking of not interested in bringing peace... The House on Thursday passed its version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act that authorizes eight hundred and fifty point three billion dollars for military spending, increasing President Biden's requested budget by thirty seven billion dollars. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah, again, uh, you know, I mean, people across the country are suffering. Uh, the infrastructure of the United States is falling apart. Uh, a lot of people in this country could use the government stepping in, spending some money to fix things up. But instead, we're worried about blowing things up on the other side of the world. Um, and this is just, you know, more and more of the same. I mean, this is the, the disaster of military Keynesianism, uh, and it's leading to a deteriorating country. The water's not being properly purified. Bridges and highways are falling apart. Uh, the infrastructure of the United States is not doing pretty well. I mean, power plants are not secure, and, you know, and, and the power grid in Texas is having more problems recently, from what I understand. This is the failure of the failure of capitalism in a lot of ways. And uh, the government is more concerned about fighting wars overseas than fixing things up
2: here at home. Caleb, when you sit back now that that Joe Biden has left his meetings um, in Israel, when you look now at in the wake of of those meetings, what do you really take away from Biden's trip uh, to Israel? He spent a couple of days Meeting with Israelis, he spent 40 minutes meeting with the uh, oppressed Palestinians. He tells the Palestinians, "I'm I'm for a two-state solution, but I don't see any space right now where there's any way for us to negotiate." Uh, wh- what's your What's your takeaway from all of that? I mean.
1: The Democratic Party is kinda of doing a song and dance because there has been some new criticism of Israel among the Democratic ranks. We remember when Obama was president, who was doing the Iran nuclear deal, Netanyahu flew to the US Capitol, spoke in, in the US Congress condemning the nuclear deal, you know, was given a platform, the leader of a foreign country to come and attack Obama in, in the in the, you know, the National Assembly, the you know, the Congress um at a joint session speech and you know also we saw Ilan Omar who's been very critical of Israel and so in the democratic camp there is some new criticism of Israel. Um so Biden being a Democratic Party president, he is trying to, you know, make clear that wow there may be new criticism of Israel within his own party, uh that he is definitely on board with Israel. He's pro Israel. Israel's not in any danger. Uh, also, there is some interesting, you know, mishmash in Israeli politics right now. The Netanyahu right wing uh, that is largely based in the settlements, you know, they have politics and strategies that are kind of at odds with what a lot of the Israeli military wants. And so, I think Biden is trying to make sure he can have a, a foot in the door as Israeli politics uh, takes some interesting turns. Uh, he basically wants to be able to uh, to be, you know, key and involved in the process of picking new Israeli leadership as. The Netanyahu right wing is kind of in a crisis right now uh, because some of their policies have just kind of gone against what most of the Israeli military and leadership would like. And I think that seeing how that plays out is important. And I think the Biden administration wants to position itself to be involved in the process of kind of renegotiating
0: things. Caleb, what's the website again for your think tank? Oh, uh, the Center for Political
1: Innovation. Our website is CPIUSA.org.
0: Thanks. We've been talking with Caleb Moffin. He's a journalist and political analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Wyatt Reed is reporting live from the Palestinian Occupied Territories. He shares the results of countless interviews with citizens in the occupied lands. Joining us now, we have the one and only Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik news analyst. Wyatt, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
3: Garland, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, let's start here. You know, I understand there's a lot of big talk about you, Wyatt. Apparently, you have had an interview with the head of the Palestinian National Initiative. Maybe you could fill us in on what you found out.
3: Oh, sure. Well, he uh, spoke, I think, on behalf of a number of uh, Palestinian voices. Uh, I spoke with him yesterday at the protest in Ramallah, and he rejected uh, the meeting that Joe Biden and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas uh, we're set to have. They have just wrapped that up um, in the past hours today. Uh, that meeting uh, was largely described as kind of a betrayal uh, by uh, a number of of political figures. Personally, I, I was told that uh, it's insulting that uh, Biden would spend uh, several days, three days, uh, meeting with Israeli officials, and then uh, give just forty minutes to the Palestinian side. Um, one particularly notable, uh, comment was, uh, that, you know, from, from, his name is Mustafa Barghouti is the, the, the head of the Palestinian national initiative party. He said, Mr. Biden loves Israel. His whole policy is dictated by Israel. So let him meet with the Israelis. Why should we meet with him so that he would use that as a cover for his efforts to liquidate our rights? And I think that that was a, a widespread sort of sentiment. Hamas issued statements uh, saying similar uh, sort of, uh, expressing similar sort of sentiments. They said that the United States is a partner in the aggression on our people. And uh, Hazm Qassam, Hamas spokesman, said that it's strange that Abbas would, quote, extend his hand for peace with the occupation. So, this is certainly, I think, a widespread uh, sentiment among Palestinians. Uh, They were rejecting this meeting with Biden even before it happened, Uh, and frankly, it seems that their concerns have been vindicated. Nothing really of substance came out of that meeting. It seemed that at their joint press conference that Mahmoud Abbas and Joe Biden were kind of talking past each other. Uh, Abbas asked rhetorically, is it not time for this occupation to end? Uh, and Biden said that the ground is not ripe at this moment to restart negotiations. Uh, so you see, uh, kind of, I mean, it's hard to, to, it's hard not to feel like Abbas is basically begging uh, Biden for something that he clearly is not willing to give.
2: To that point, Wyatt, you know, it's one thing if you're negotiating oil and gas leases, or you're negotiating land value. But I I would have hoped that Abbas's response would have been, well, why should we wait when we're being tortured now? Why should we wait when ethnic cleansing is occurring now? And I think, you know, the time of subtleties and patience are long past due.
3: Right, and this is why the latest opinion polls show that close to 80 percent of Palestinians want for Mahmoud Abbas to step down. Uh, there have been no elections since he postponed the ones that were planned for last April. After data indicated that the Fatah party, of which Mr. Abbas is a member, was going to suffer a landslide defeat at the hands of Hamas, uh, they decided apparently to postpone elections. They blamed the Israelis for supposedly. Uh, refusing to allow the citizens of East Jerusalem, where I am now, to vote. Uh, but that is something that Israel even uh, wouldn't confirm that they they were doing. Uh, it struck most observers as pretty uh, a pretty transparent, naked ploy to uh, avoid a, a massive defeat at the polls. Uh, and, you know, I think this is, you can see sort of why. And the, the protests that have occurred today in Bethlehem that I went to yesterday in Ramallah Uh, really gave voice to these Palestinians who uh, have been excluded from this process so far, who were not invited to meet with U.S. President Biden, um, largely presumably because they would have very little uh, nice to say to him.
0: You know, you've been traveling around, um, you know, in that area here for the past few days and you've been discussing people, uh, discussing these issues with people. Give us a thought on the overall mood, on the overall view, how people are looking as, you know, in the aggregate, how the people that you're talking to see this Biden, um, this Biden uh, trip and this Biden meeting.
3: People have basically given up on the idea of a negotiated peace settlement at this point. That's uh, just a widespread feeling. You hear it everywhere you go, everyone you talk to. There's very little optimism that there could be some kind of negotiated outcome to this. Uh, There's very little hope that either Israel or the United States are really acting in good faith when it comes to the so-called two-state solution. And this is pushing people, especially the youngest generation, towards more militant stances of self-defense against what they would typify as Israeli apartheid or occupation. And, you know, that's really going to play into the hands of of other parties like the PFLP, like the Palestinian National Initiative, and like Hamas, Uh, those parties that are not willing to uh, go along to get along and uh, essentially legitimize a, a process of peace that more and more Palestinians are becoming to view as a farce and as a kind of a, a way to distract them while the, the uh, expansion of settlements continues unabated, while people, uh, working people especially, are hit hard by rising food and fuel prices and uh, by record inflation. Uh, for the United States to... Uh, Come to town and really, and not even offer to reopen the you know, you know, the Palestinian consulate in Washington or the U.S. consulate um, in Palestine uh, in Jerusalem. It's frankly, you know, I think um, Barghouti, uh you know, who I quoted earlier, I think he spoke for everyone when he said it's absolutely insulting.
2: As I understand it, as uh, President Biden and his convoy went to East Jerusalem, they took the Israeli flag off of the American automobiles. And that's been reported as some type of subtle but, you know, big gesture by the United States. Was that your chuckles? Tell me that that was actually perceived to be the the very, very hollow gesture that it actually was.
3: Right. Well, they, they said uh, nothing about justice for Shireen uh, Abu Akwa, the slain Palestinian-American journalist who uh, worked for Al Jazeera, who was shot, according to a number of independent investigations, um, by Israeli soldiers, shot and killed, I should say, in May, uh, leading to widespread global outrage uh, and near-universal condemnation uh, of Israel. Except, of course, from the United States, uh, which released uh, its own findings that said that while this was a tragedy, uh, it, there is nothing to uh, suggest that this was intentional. That you know that the Israelis intentionally shot her. I suppose they accidentally shot her. They the finger just slipped or something. Um, so you know, while while the U.S. kind of gestures towards uh, some process of accountability at some indeterminate point in the future on behalf of their own citizen, uh, they are, are not doing anything either, you know, uh, at least in public to actually generate such an outcome, no public words pressuring them, no real outrage expressed on her behalf. Uh, instead you have things, uh, like what you just mentioned, the, uh, refu- these, this removal of an Israeli flag, uh, from the U S motorcade as though it was appropriate in the first place. To have the president of the United States waving around the flag of another country, uh, you know, I, I don't understand why why it had the the flags on in the first place. To be completely honest,
0: you know, one of the things we we discussed over the course of the last year, I believe there was a UN or a, it was an Amnesty International that did an investigation and they concluded that um, Israel was practice of a, a, a apartheid policies or with an apartheid state. I forget the exact language there. Do you see any evidence of difference in treatment in where you are? Have you seen anything that is different in how the Palestinians have to travel around or anything like that, that, you know, give, gives you pause, shall we say?
3: Well, absolutely. Today I spent uh, at least half an hour at a checkpoint in Kalandia, uh, attempting to come back from Ramallah to Jerusalem. Uh, it's an ordeal getting back, you know, just just going to a city that's uh, a few miles away uh, takes hours sometimes for average people to get to work, to get to school, to get to where they want. Uh, they have to line up and go through this rather humiliating ordeal of, uh, of taking all their belongings off and putting them in a metal detector or walking through a metal detector, having them x-rayed and then going and uh, speaking directly in many cases, in most cases, uh, to an IDF soldier and kind of having to make their case for why it is they should be allowed uh, to enter. Uh, You know, that to me, just going through it today was uh, very indicative of the kind of of sort of two tiered treatment system that exists in Palestine. Uh, I was driving around uh, Ramallah last night and you see, as you as you drive, uh, these signs everywhere that tell you which uh, who is allowed to use which road. You know, some roads are only for Israelis, and uh, other roads, you know, Palestinians can use as as well. Uh, there are a handful of roads that are just for Palestinians, but it's uh, very apparent that there is, you know, different rules for different folks, and that bleeds through. I mean, even in terms of. Uh, even in terms of residency, there's tiers of Palestinians. Some Palestinians uh, who live in Jerusalem, which is kind of a, a higher rank on on that totem pole, uh, you know, they'll they'll go outside of Jerusalem and live for a couple years, and then they're no longer allowed to come back and live there permanently. Uh, even though that is their their home, their historic home, uh, they kind of have to ask permission to move about it freely. And I've met a number of people. Uh, who simply cannot leave their home. They have, uh, you know, uh, no ability to get travel documents that would allow them to leave. So they're basically stuck. And while it is their home, it's kind of like an open-air prison. They can't go anywhere. Uh, You know, I talked to a journalist colleague uh, uh, yesterday about uh, when he had gone uh, on a trip abroad that was sponsored by, uh, you know, some U.S. academic institution, and then he was able, for the first time in 30 years, to swim in the, in the ocean because he simply can't do that here. Um, you know, it, it's not allowed. He is Palestinian, so he can't do it. Um, and that's, you know, kind of typical of, of the treatment that Palestinians receive under what they generally would describe as an apartheid system.
2: What about your treatment as an American? Uh, How how have you been treated, and particularly as you have, I would assume, been traveling with Palestinians?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm certainly treated a little bit nicer. Uh, I think there's an understanding among Israeli bureaucrats and uh, just the general population that you know the United States is kind of the guarantor of their whole system. That without the United States, uh, they wouldn't really be able to function. They certainly wouldn't would, wouldn't be able to uh, saber rattle and and say the kinds of things they do in public towards their neighbors and towards the Palestinian population. Uh, so I do think you know the UN, U.S. citizens, people who are understood to be uh, U.S. Uh, you know, are going to get a little bit more favorable treatment just in general. Um, now, in terms of uh, in terms of the. The, the, tr- the difference in treatment um, as compared to, to Palestinians, uh, obviously they're on the other end, right? They, they kind of the Israelis treat them as, as though they are subhumans in some senses. I mean, uh, and, they're, and they're allowed to. And I had it explained to me that, um, you know, because of this kind of attitude of, of mistreatment towards the Palestinian people, Israelis generally don't feel as comfortable walking around, for example, this city, Jerusalem. They kind of tend to look over their shoulder more often, feel like they're under attack, uh, you know, and and as much of that as uh, is largely projection.
0: There's an article in Middle East Eye. They're wrong. Biden rejects U.S. progressive lawmakers' criticism of Israel. U.S. President Biden rejected the notion that criticism of Israel from progressive lawmakers represents a growing divide within the Democratic Party, saying that bipartisan support for Israel will remain a constant in this country. Personally, I think it's a constant amongst the leadership. But when you look at polls across the country, um, they don't support his assertion. Wyatt.
3: Right. The notion that, that uh, they're just sort of a far and few between handful of people who who are opposed to apartheid, uh, I think is pretty laughable. Polling suggests uh, a major increase, especially since the last generation, uh, young Americans uh, more and more beginning to identify uh, Israel as as an occupation or as an apartheid state. Uh, Biden kind of dismissed uh, dismissed those who who criticize them, the few voices in Congress who dare to speak up and, and criticize Israeli apartheid among them, chiefly Rashida Tlaib. Uh, and he said, there are a few of them. There's just a few of them. I think they're wrong. This is what he told Israeli media. I think they're making a mistake. Israel is a democracy. Israel is our ally. Israel is a friend. And he finished by saying, I make no apologies. Uh, and then, you know, he went on to uh, he went on quickly to, uh, fly to Jeddah, to Saudi Arabia to meet with the president. He, uh, w- I should say with the crown prince who he promised to make a pariah after the CIA itself found that, uh, Mohammed bin Salman personally approved the plan to, uh, chop up Washington post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, and then dissolve his body in acid, uh, and one of those supposedly few members that Biden referenced, Ilhan Omar, uh, actually spoke out today uh, regarding that trip to Saudi Arabia that uh, President Biden is currently enjoying. She said it sends the wrong message to everyone who cares about human rights. Starting this trend of saying you're going to do one thing on foreign policy and not really is harmful. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, if anything, kind of. An understatement, right? We're we're talking about uh, Biden just years after saying that we're going to make them pay the price, uh, and then you know it turns out the price is apparently uh, a nice uh, visit, a fist bump from President Biden. Uh, that <laughs> to say that that sends uh, a uh, the wrong message. Uh, frankly, it sends a horrifying message. Uh, the message that it sends is that human rights, democracy, freedom, all these Uh, lovely words, this lofty sort of language that we hear so frequently from Biden, from the U.S. presidency, from the U.S. government. All of that is basically a facade, and it's used as window dressing uh, to mask the naked sort of realist uh, national uh, strategic, if you will, uh, intentions of the government, which are generally, at the end of the day, based on dominating resources and overthrowing governments that they don't like while uh, propping up those that they do. I think Israel, Saudi Arabia are chief on that list of the latter.
0: Well, and then let's put it this way. It sends an accurate message, unpleasant, but quite accurate. We've been talking with uh, Wyatt uh, Reed. Um, You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thanks, Garland. John Kiriakou, our very own Sputnik political analyst, is reporting on President Biden's meeting in Riyadh, live from Saudi Arabia. Also, President Biden rejects progressive lawmakers' criticism of Israel. Joining us to discuss these issues, we have whistleblower, journalist, author, and host of our very own political misfits, John Kiriakou. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks so much for having me. John, I know you spent a lot of time in the Middle East um, in your former career with the CIA. Um, tell me how, Sa- how, if at all, Saudi Arabia has changed um, since the last time you've been there and how long has it been?
4: Oh, it, it's, it's dramatic. I was last in Saudi Arabia in 1996 and I was last in Jeddah in 1991. Uh, I've been to the Middle East a million times since then, but I just never had reason to come to Saudi Arabia. So I have to tell you, I was stunned when I arrived here, and um, noticed a handful of dramatic differences. First of all, I've seen countless women who are not veiled; they're not wearing um, uh, abayas, the the black. Uh, cover all, uh, their faces are not covered. In many cases, their hair is not covered. That's just, I I, I mean, they even had religious police here. Uh, when I, when I was here in the nineties and you'd get a, you'd get a good whack from a bamboo cane for not having your face covered. So, uh, seeing that has been a shock. Um, even the women who are wearing veils are not necessarily wearing black veils. I saw a woman wearing pink yesterday, which also was unheard of in the nineties. There was a guy at the hotel and breakfast today, um, an Arab, although I don't know his nationality, uh, wearing shorts and flip flops in a public space. And then the most dramatic change of all is, you know, the the Saudis, when I lived here, they, they took prayer time very, very seriously. And if you were in a restaurant or in a meeting during prayer time, uh, you had to get up and physically leave the building if you weren't going to stay behind and pray. And then when prayer was over, which usually took about 15 minutes, then they would reopen everything and you could go back inside and finish your meal or finish your meeting. I, I haven't even heard the call to prayer since I've been here. And certainly they haven't shut anything down. So the the difference that 30 years makes is just incredible. Speaking to
2: that, but looking at the fact that as I've uh, read that Saudi authorities executed 81 men in March of 2022, uh, the largest mass execution in years, and f- I think 41 of those were Shia Muslim men. The The optics are different, but has the d- cultural dynamic changed?
4: The cultural dynamic, I fear, has not changed. That's, that's a good point that you raise. Uh, You know, people are so quick to say, wow, you know, as as bad as Mohammed bin Salman might be, you know, he killed Khashoggi and everything. Uh, He's really reformed the place and now women can drive and and women are allowed to go to movie theaters and bowling alleys. Does it really matter? I haven't seen any women driving, first of all, and it's my understanding that no women are driving in Saudi Arabia. Technically, they have the right to do so, but they can't get driver's licenses. And, uh, and so what if a woman can go into a movie theater now? Does that really change anything? Um, so I think that the that the overall culture has not changed. Uh, you know, one of the things when, when these 81 men were executed, all on the same day, by the way, you didn't hear any um, public outcry, right? There were no human rights organizations here in, in the country to – protest or to make statements saying that it was barbaric to behead 81 people. Um, So, no, I think to answer your question, the overall culture really hasn't changed that greatly. It may be just around the periphery.
0: All right. Well, let's get to the actual meeting itself. Um, What are your thoughts on um, what's happening there? The meeting between President Biden and uh, and, and Mohammed bin Salman, which, of course, we know is not about oil. He's made it clear he's not there to talk about oil. And there's no sand in Saudi Arabia. Those are two things we know for sure. That's right.
4: That's right, Garland. If he's not there to talk about oil <laughs> and he's not there to talk about Khashoggi, they're just going to sit there for an hour and stare at each other because then there's nothing else to talk about. Um, I've got a couple of thoughts about this. Actually, uh, it, it's been it's been a very um, educational day for me. Uh, when I was still at the CIA, I participated in two presidential visits. Uh, George H. W. Bush came to Bahrain, and uh, and Bill Clinton came to Athens when I was stationed there, and. It's such a a momentous event when you're in government because everybody in the embassy and the consulate drops everything and everybody helps with the visit. Uh, The road is closed. Uh, There's blanket police coverage everywhere, armored personnel carriers at the major intersections. You would have no idea that a president of the United States was in Jeddah today. No idea. It's business as usual people driving around, uh, traffic's not being rerouted. Um, I mentioned on one of the earlier shows, I did see two helicopters today and that was it. That was it. No flags are flying. You know how in Washington and most everywhere else they would put the Saudi and the American flags together. Nothing. There's none of that. Um, there was a, um, kind of an offensive protocol issue when the president arrived. First of all, with much fanfare, he arrived directly from uh, Israel. It's the first time ever in the history of the planet that a plane has flown directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia and landed. So that's kind of a big deal, and the Saudi government said that effective immediately Israeli planes would be allowed to land at Saudi airports, and Saudi planes would be able to land at Israeli airports. It's symbolic, but it's a big deal in the greater context of the politics of the region. But when President Biden arrived in Jeddah, by rights, the correct protocol is that he would be met at the airport by the king. Well, the king is 86 years old, and he's in poor health, and he suffers from dementia. And so the king did not meet President Biden at the airport. Similarly, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did not meet him at the airport because Biden made it clear he really didn't want to talk to Mohammed bin Salman. So instead, he was met by the governor of Mecca province, the uh, head of protocol and the Saudi ambassador to the United States. Um, That's offensive, you know, but that's the way the Saudis did it. Biden said a month ago that he would not meet with Mohammed bin Salman. Then three days ago, he said that he would meet with him, but not privately, only in the context of a larger meeting with his father, the king. Then today he said that he would meet with Mohammed bin Salman, but he wouldn't shake his hand. And so he went directly uh, by limo from the airport, To the meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, who was standing outside waiting for him. They did a fist bump, and then they went into the meeting, which should have ended about an hour ago. We have no idea what they talked about. Now, if you or I were president, we would talk about oil, we would talk about Khashoggi, we might talk about Iran, but we don't have any idea. And we don't know if the meeting with the king was substantive. Now, one of the important things that I learned today, I I went to to the press briefing today and I was speaking with a journalist from Al Jazeera. And this journalist said to me, in the meeting with the king, look to see if the king has an iPad on his lap. And I laughed and I said, why would the king have an iPad on his lap? And the journalist told me because the king has dementia. And Mohammed bin Salman, also has an iPad, and he's constantly typing in questions for his father to ask or answers, responses for his father to give because mentally he just can't follow the conversation. So we haven't seen any photos yet from the meeting with the king. I don't know how that ended up working out. They haven't told us.
2: I wonder if Joe Biden has an iPad, but that's a, that's another conversation.
4: <laughs> I haven't uh, read my mind.
2: <laughs> yeah, but he keeps losing it. So he can't answer the questions. Well, he can't, can't figure out how to turn it on. Right. <laughs> in listening to your description about the meeting, one of the things and, in and, and the, the, the pomp and circumstance and the lack thereof, it makes me wonder are the Saudis saying we're not giving you your just due? Or is it possible that because there is such pushback for Biden? to have the meeting. In fact, Biden said as late as last week, "I'm not really going there to meet with him. I am going to see him at some joint meeting that we're going to attend." That the administration doesn't want the fanfare because they don't want it really being hyped up on mainstream western
4: press. Is that possible? I think the latter is is the way that this has worked out. I think the Saudis First of all, if we weren't in this feud with Mohammed bin Salman, I think Mohammed bin Salman would have been front and center at Jeddah airport. Um, So, yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it was the administration that actually wanted to downplay the arrival. And, you know, another thing that they're doing to downplay the the bilateral aspect of this meeting is uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council heads of state are in town for their annual summit tomorrow. The Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, is made up of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and the UAE. Um, So all of their kings and emirs and sultans and presidents are here. Uh, The Saudis have also invited the president of Egypt and the prime minister of Jordan, which is highly unusual. Usually it's just the six Gulf leaders. So it's the six plus two plus one being Biden. We don't know what the agenda is. It's never been released. We don't know if Biden is going to try to pressure them to come to some sort of a defense, a regional defense agreement with Israel. We don't know if he's going to brief them on Iran or the JCPOA or if he's just gonna listen to their complaints about Iran. We really have no idea the purpose of this second day of meetings
0: interesting so uh, 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 another question um, you know you're in in the area we know the president has um, has just left Israel um, there's an article and this is Middle East Eye, US President Joe Biden rejected the notion that criticism of Israel from progressive lawmakers represents a growing divide within the Democratic Party saying that bipartisan support for Israel will remain a constant in the country I know that you did at one time work on Capitol Hill and I'm sure you uh, I'm sure you saw those dynamics in the Senate, your thoughts on that
4: yeah i was um i was I was kind of surprised by by the strength with which Biden complained about progressives and their stance on Israel APAC as we all know um, is not the political force that it was even ten years ago, which is a good thing in my opinion and so at least on Capitol Hill, I think Palestinians have made some inroads over the last decade or decade and a half. I think finally the Israelis and their American supporters are starting to put their foot down and saying that they don't want to lose what they've accomplished over all these decades on Capitol Hill. And they're going to start opposing progressives who oppose the Israeli agenda. Uh, That's, that's a shame. I think that's, that's very sad. I was talking to a Palestinian journalist today about the announcement that that the U.S. was going to send $100 million in medical aid to help uh, pay for Palestinian hospitals throughout the West Bank. And he said, you know, that's all great. We need the money. We'll take the money. We're grateful for the money. But it doesn't do anything to advance the cause of peace. He said what Biden could have done that wouldn't have cost any money, was to allow the reopening of the PLO office in Washington, but APAC won't allow that. He could have authorized the reopening of the U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem for Palestinian consular issues. He didn't do that. So he said it's nice to have 100 million for hospitals. We could really use it, but what we really want is freedom.
2: And to that point, President Biden says, "Yes, I I support a two-state solution, but not right now. Uh, there's not so so it that just reminds me of 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 the of the uh, during the abolitionist movement in the United States. It was well uh, enslaved Africans in the United States. They can have freedom by and by. The country isn't ready for it. The landscape isn't ready. So it's just." kick in the can down the road.
4: I thought it was a I thought it was a terrible thing to say. Um, First of all, I think the two state solution is the only solution. But to hear the Israelis tell it, the two state solution is dead. So if you're the president of the United States, you either put your foot down and say, look, peace is possible, but it's going to have to be a two state solution. Right. The Palestinians deserve Um, uh, self-determination. They deserve their own country with Jerusalem as its capital. That's always been the U.S. position. But to then say, you know, just not today or in the near future, it completely undercuts your entire policy. You're either for two states, you're either for Palestinian independence, or you're not. And if you're not for it today, that means you're not. I was disappointed in that statement. And, and to say
2: that sitting right across to Mahmoud Abbas, who, in my opinion, exactly. should have turned to Joe Biden and said, yeah, but we're dying right now.
4: I'm sorry. Let me just say real quickly, there was a terrific piece in The New York Times today about Mahmoud Abbas. You know, he's he's elderly. He's well into his, his 80s. And the person who appears to be slated to take over from him is detested by the Palestinian in the street because he's never stood up to the Israelis. And so at least domestically in Palestine, um, for their own political purposes, I think that they're not looking at a lot of positive changes in the near future.
0: Yeah, I I, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, a fake, um, a kind of a head fake towards, yes, I think you guys should get something and we should come to some resolution. One of these old days. Well, you're 80 years old. So apparently you're saying not in my lifetime. In other words, Lead, go away for now, and we're just going to give you a head fake and brush you off. We've been talking with John Kiriakou. He is a whistleblower, a journalist, an author, and host of a great show here on Radio Sputnik called Political Misfits. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. John Bolton has admitted to planning multiple coups on behalf of the United States. Also, the Russia sanctions are backfiring catastrophically on the EU and the battle of narratives is moving towards the side of the nation that is actually winning on the battlefield. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, it's a pleasure. And Steve Poikinen, national organi- organizer for Action for Assange and host of Slow News Day on rockfin.com. Steve Porkinen, welcome back.
5: Thank you very much, gentlemen.
0: All right. Former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton took credit for attempting to oust foreign leaders, claiming he played a role in regime's change efforts abroad, while suggesting that ex-President Donald Trump lacked the foresight to carry out his own regime change at home. Start with you. Your thoughts, Jim Cavanaugh.
6: Well, saying saying the loud part out loud, (laughs) I mean— You know, it's nice that he says it. Everybody knew it. Uh, That's his job. That was his job. That's the job of American national security, foreign policy people. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, he claimed when he did this in Venezuela, he got up in the public. This isn't a coup. This isn't a coup because Maduro wasn't really elected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now he's explicitly saying, oh, yeah, we – we ran a coup in Venezuela. We tried to run a coup in Venezuela. It takes a lot of work. Therefore, you know, we should understand Donald Trump isn't smart enough to do that. And he's right in a certain sense. It just, you know, it takes an organization. And, a, and even though they had a tremendous amount of organization and money in, behind the coup in Venezuela, it hasn't succeeded, although they haven't given up on it yet. So, you know, what he's doing is, you know, uh, uh, I'm glad describing uh, accurately
5: what American foreign policy is about.
0: Steve Boykinen.
5: You know, it, it amazes me that, uh, that it took a comparison to the January 6th debacle to get John Bolton to be like, no, 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 wait. I know all about coups. I'm a professional. You have to have smart people planning. And what we saw there wasn't that. Like You had to challenge his ability as to who was the supreme coup meister in the building. And he felt a little bit threatened. He was like, "These clowns, <laughs> they, they they couldn't coo in elementary school." You want to know how it's done? You talk to the pros. You come to John Bolton, uh, and people were like, "Yeah, yeah, no, that's that makes sense. That sounds he really does know about that." The one thing I can say about Venezuela, three and a half years into it now, Juan Guaido finally getting recognized at a restaurant, so he's got that going.
2: <laughs> you know. When you look at uh, a couple of months ago, Biden saying that Putin has to go. When you look at during the Trump administration, while uh, while Trump was trying to negotiate or allegedly with uh, Korean uh, leader Kim Jong Un, Bolton says, "Look, you don't want to go the way of Gaddafi." So you you've got you've got those statements being made. Uh, how tone deaf. Is this or was this, in fact, tone deaf for a former national security advisor to just be stating so publicly in the midst of all the things that are going on now that this is what we do? And what about the lack of real response from mainstream Western media? Jim.
6: Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Joe Bolton's been saying this stuff for a long time. He said about the UN, we, we don't pay attention to the UN, we run the UN, we do what we want with the UN. He went around to the, uh, threatening the families of international criminal court justices. He threatened the families of opposition leaders in Venezuela. In Venezuela. Don't, you run in the, don't you go participate in that election, <laughs> you know? And so he, he's been doing this. And even and at the end of this interview with Jake Tapper, Tapper says, I suspect you have a lot of other things you could have talked about here. And I think Bolton said something like, yeah, probably do. So, but the point is, why hasn't, why, you know, the guy hasn't been brought in and out of, of uh, he's one of the deep state, you know, permanent government people who's been in and out of this, these, these positions of power for decades So he's not someone who's rejected by the state. He's someone who's being used all the time. So it's clear what he's speaking is the policy that's part of the major part of the foreign policy apparatus of the United States. Why isn't that being investigated? Why isn't the investigative press, supposedly, of the investigative free press, making a big deal of this? You know, if it were a Chinese or a Russian official who said this, They'd be, they be talking about this all the time, but they let this go as if John Bolton's some kind of you know outlying weird guy who's a clown in the amongst the adults. No, he's, been a, he's telling you what the drivers of American foreign policy are, and that should be highlighted and investigated. They put that aside and talk about freedom and autocracy.
2: Well, Steve, uh, to, to Jim's point, we have to get rid of uh – Putin, because he's an authoritarian. We have to get rid of President Xi in China. He's an authoritarian. We have to get rid of Maduro because what's more authoritarian than a coup?
5: Right. And and if you disagree with that, then we'll ban you from social media and possibly <laughs> lock you away. It's Jim hit on a couple of really good points there. And one being John Bolton's Part of this machine. It's his, he's doing his job. He's going to work, going out there and talking all that nonsense to serious news face Jake Tapper. Uh, and what he's doing is paving the way, hopefully, if he's doing his job right, you know, uh, paving the way for the military industrial complex to continue rolling out weapons of death and for fun and profit. Uh, he, he's you know, At this point in his career, he's less statesman and more salesman, and he knows that. So he's going to go out and peddle as much fear as humanly possible because that's how the checks keep coming in.
0: Yeah. The, yeah, You know, the other thing I got to throw in here before we move on to our next thing is this. Jake Tapper is one of the tools that he uses for regime change in that he they, they get the media to tell whatever lie they want to. Where is... Um, The squad. Where is the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Progressive Caucus? Where are all these people that are supposed to speak up against this who say Trump's a criminal? We want Trump so bad. If we find any crime on him, we're going to take him out. John Bolton comes out and says, well, let's see. It's against U.S. law to overthrow a government. It's against international law to overthrow a government. Here's the evidence that you've been waiting for to investigate and charge Donald Trump with a crime. You got him, and it's like crickets. Why? Because they don't really want Donald Trump. They're all part of the team that does this, Jim. Yeah, that's that's an excellent
6: point. Uh, uh, this is. Uh, this is the inevitable part, intrinsic part of American foreign policy, and they're not interested in investigating it. They're not interested in that. They're, they're interested. And, you know, Bolton is one of these guys who, like, like Trump, says too many things out loud. And, you know, the other, the, the Democratic uh, secretaries of state and national security advisors talk about democracy and autocracy and blah, 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 blah. But behind it, that they're really doing the policy that Bolton is being blatant about. And the supposed opposition in, or liberal democratic opposition in the press or the Congress doesn't want to hear about it. (laughs) And they don't want to go after it. And that's what we see.
0: Um, Let's jump to another subject. When sanctions backfire, the EU doesn't have a plan for life without cheap Russia energy. So what happens next? As Germany reports its first trade deficit in 30 years, the prospects for West European industry look grim thanks to the U.S.-led sanctions on Russia. Steve. It appears to me one could look at this and think that either these Western leaders are inept, hapless bunglers, or that they're intentionally taking out their own economies. You know, the more I see the preposterous absurdity of the policies that I see throughout NATO and the EU— I'm starting to lean towards the former as opposed to the latter. But let's start with you. Steve, the EU is uh, putting a gun to its own head and pulling the trigger economically with these sanctions. Your thoughts.
5: Several years ago, uh, there was a, a guy who runs the World Economic Forum currently, and Klaus Schwab, who came out with a book called, the or a white paper called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, a subsequent book called COVID-19 and the Great Reset. And in it, through... The, the World Economic Forum and Chatham House and the uh, Bloomberg uh, economy thing and all that. So they're trying to drive these policies um, <clears throat> through captured world leaders that they have bragged about. You know, we, we have half of Canada's cabinet We're, they're ours, this kind of thing um, to bring about an economic reset. Like they're openly holding conventions to brag about how they're going to completely restructure the global economy. They don't tell you it's going to look really messy. They don't tell you that part of that is going to be Olaf Schultz coming out and saying, maybe you should go forage, or maybe you should go gather sticks for fuel. Um, But without a doubt, according to their own paperwork and the agreements that they sign and the meetings that they go to, this is the controlled demolition of the European economy. It's the controlled demolition of the Western economy in general. And what's supposed to replace it is a central bank-backed digital currency and us on UBI and our life on the blockchain with impossibly more surveillance than we already experienced. But that's just what they're saying. So I don't
0: know.
5: Jim.
6: Yeah, but it is complicated because you do see that this is, they're destroying, you know, the United States is going to temporarily gain from this economically, certainly. They're going to gain over Europe. You know, Europe's going to become more dependent on the United States and they want that to happen. So the United States wants it to happen. So, you know, and the European kind of leadership, even the capitalist leadership is ca- cottoning on to this and Germany's going to be in a, Problematic situation that's going to create fissures and disunity in the so-called Western rules-based international order that that are going to be dangerous for eventually and pretty quickly, I think, for the hegemony of the United States. So there is a little element of this, and whatever their grand plans are, you know, they're stuck in. They're still nation states, and there are there are still national economies and societies, and re- the people are rebelling against this. Even the, the indigenous capitalist interests will be braced against this. So you've got a whole dynamic here that's in play that is just bizarre to see. Once they started with this sanctioning Russia, which started 10 years ago, you know every bit of this, and the Russians understood this, that's why sanctionings aren't going to work against Russia in this circumstance, because the reason they're, that's just confirming to them that this is what we got to stop. We have been under this sanctions threat for a decade, and it's never going to stop. They don't, you know, so, so the Europeans are now in this, and they're realizing they've been trapped in this, too, because when are you going to say to Russia, okay, well, relax the sanctions? Never, uh, whether they had invaded Ukraine or not. Until you, Russia becomes a new compliant, yeltsin puppet regime, they're never going to involve. So the Russians, are, now they've called the question on that, and they've moved beyond it, and it's destabilizing the whole so-called Western capitalist order as it's been developed certainly since the d- demise of the Soviet Union, but even since World War
2: II. Jim, to your point, this is very complex. O- on one level, I see it as an ideological conflict. And 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 uh, Steve, we'll start with you on this. Uh, there's an ideological conflict. There's American imperialism versus everybody else. And the United States, there are those who follow the Brzezinski model that just hate Russia because they're Russia. And we have to do away with Russia because we hate Russia and it's Russia. But then we have another element of this, the economics of it, which is a financialized economy, which is what the United States has become, versus a uh, manufacturing-based economy, which is what China is. And we know that we're going through Russia to get to China. But the problem when dealing with China as a manufacturing-based economy is that they also have their own bank. And they're, finan- they're replacing in many countries what the IMF and what the World Bank has been doing. So it is very confusing, but at the end of the day, I don't see how the United States wins the fight. Unless it's bigger than, unless the elites that are involved are bigger than the United States.
5: Right. Well, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of the way that it, it looks to be shaping up because in the minds of the oligarchs and the minds of these people who really move, you know, from nation state to nation state with a punity or hold multiple passports, nation states are just a quaint concept that is a mechanism to control a population through social issue or wedge issue division, rather than having an entire, you know, continent united against a small group of of uh, oligarchs. Um, where it's really going to to come into play, what the U.S. can't compete with through ideology is what you address—the fact that. China has a manufacturing economy. They have trade deals with the countries that have the real resources. They haven't gone about uh their brand of of you know soft global conquest the way the u s has with a bullet or with torture they they've gone in and said, "Hey, we'll build things for you, and if you default on the loan, it's just our stuff. You know that's all no big deal um and that's a much nicer way. Uh, of gaining a a toehold on the global economy because the U.S. is sitting there trying to fight imaginary communists or like the ghost of Mao Zedong when they're doing it via a computer or via drones. We don't make anything here. We, there's no way you can sustain this. So it, it's headed for a collapse. The only question at that point is how many oligarchs to, to grab how many bags before they hop on a plane and take off.
2: Jim Cavanaugh.
6: Yeah, look, the, the, who, who was it? The, some leader in South America or, or Africa said, you know, when the Americans come to talk to us, they talk about China, China, China. What are we do, stop China? When the Chinese come to talk to us, they talk about, what can we build? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> let's make it beautiful, <laughs> you know? And, and so that's the difference at this point. The United States is in a kind of bizarrely defensive mode. Uh, uh, you know, offensive, defensive mode. Uh, And they know that the Chinese have something to offer, which is a manufacturing base, which is, you know, we want to build up your capacities to match ours, et cetera. Whereas the United States is out there trying to prevent China from coming in, you know, because they have nothing to offer. Uh, And they get people involved, and they do think, you know, the American and and westernized uh, European financialized elites think they can run it with money and computers, but it's not just money, it's real resources. And the Chinese and the Russians have real resources, and they built up manufacturing capacity for that. And that is the kind of fundamental economic baseline difference that is going to, that, gives the, that weakens the United States or the American side, so to speak, and, and the uh, Eurasian side at this point. And it's going to eat away at the American hegemony. And there's nothing you can do with it except we're going to rebuild our, our industrial base. You know, that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in making money on financial deals, It's financialized capitalism, as Michael Hudson said, versus what he calls industrialized socialism, but, uh, which is maybe we'd call it, you know, state capitalism or something. But it's, it's a different model of economic uh, advancement. And that's what the United States has developed its hegemony on since World War II, the control of the economic institutions and the financial institutions of the world.
0: Many G20 dem- diplomats are more concerned with their own national interests than punishing Russia with economic sanctions for attacking Ukraine. EU foreign policy chief Josep Borrell has said he claimed the West was being accused of double standards and had failed to win a, a battle of narratives in relation to Ukraine. The global battle of narratives is in full swing, and for now, we are not winning. Two quick things there before we start with you, Steve. Number one, imagine that people are actually more concerned with keeping the natives from coming to the castle with pitchforks and uh, and, and torches than they are, quote, punishing Ukraine, which they're not even really doing that. And number two, very early in this um, conflict, there was a lot of discussion about the Russians are losing the uh, the narrative. They're losing the narrative. And it appears in the long term that the one who wins on the battlefield ultimately wins the narrative. Start with you, Steve Porkinin.
5: Well, I mean, the idea that any nation, for example, Italy with thousands of people in the streets currently, or Switzerland with now thousands of people in the streets, or the Netherlands with, you know, all of their, their farmers raising hell over there. The idea that these world leaders would want to take care of that rather than cater to whatever megal- megalomaniacal <laughs> whim the United States has is just, I mean, that's, that's just rude gentlemen that's just rude because we're supposed to be pampered and that's what it says in the bible um on the the, to the next point we we we've talked about this the entire time that vladimir putin was saying we have no choice but to do a military operation in ukraine these are our targets these are demands the united states is running around Going Vladimir Putin will stop at nothing short of reconstituting the entire Soviet Union, if not conquest of the whole planet. And anything short of that is going to be an automatic victory for the United States of America and NATO and our allies. And you can't sustain a you can't sustain a fiction when there's zero foundation to it. It's not even a house of cards or a house of toothpicks. It's like a house of dryer sheets in the middle of a stiff breeze.
0: You know, uh, Jim, this is something that you and I and Wilmer talked about early in the game. We talked about the narrative, the, the, and, and we said, oh, the Russians don't appear to be very good at dealing with the narrative. The information war, they're losing. And now it just appears like this. If you win on a battlefield, eh, the, the information war and the narrative kind of falls in your lap sooner or later. Jim.
6: Well, also, you know, they have th- – bueno, one of the things they complain about, what Burrell complained about, the head of the EU, we're losing the information war because all these global south countries and non-western countries, you know, all the non-white countries, are uh, saying this is double standards. You know, we, we don't like the idea of uh, – we like the idea of territorial integrity. We don't like giving up territory, te- ter- the territorial integrity of Ukraine. But you're, te- you're trying to force us into, a, into a, 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 an offensive against Russia on the basis of double standards. You do this. Crap all the time you did it with Kosovo, you know you break up countries, so and what they want to do is then they say it out loud, many of them want to break up the, break up russia <laughs> uh, and that 's what they kind of want to do with you with with China with uh, the Uyghurs in the uh, the Xinjiang province. so they know this, they know at, at the end of the day the United states can can pitch it to their own you know western uh Uh, the, 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 the populace that is dominated by the Western media, but the global South knows what the game is going on. And yes, if you're not winning the battle and you're clearly lying for months about what's been happening in the battle, and it's clear that you're lying about that, and they know that for decades, if not centuries, you've been lying in double standards about colonialism and 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 uh, uh, you know domination of other countries, and you're trying to pretend that the Russia is doing something that you know you haven't been guilty of for centuries, and aren't guilty of right now. We're not playing this game. So that's now the ability of the Western media to influence the narratives in the South, the global South, so to speak, is kind of gone, and it went pretty quickly whether it's gone yet in the in the west in Europe itself is America and Europe itself is is another issue and I think it's eroding there too.
2: Steve, some G20 diplomats Borel lamented were more concerned about the consequences of the war for themselves than in going after the supposed culprit. Others complain about double standards or simply want to preserve their good bilateral relationship with Russia. Well, duh. I mean, first of all, supposed culprit, that means that the blame that the United States has been trying to assign may not actually be the blame. And the other thing is since you do get most of your energy from Russia, you might want to pay your bill or the energy company is going to turn off your energy. I mean, that's that you don't have to have a Ph.D. in political science to figure that out.
5: No. And, and it's I mean, it's a little bit different when you get with G2, the G20 nations. It's not as, as insular or, you know, we're a part of the same cabal as NATO and the G7 is. Um, And there are people that that have historically, at least for the last 10, 20 years, done a ton of business with Russia and had fantastic or at least amicable business partnerships with Russia. They are in no hurry to sacrifice their own people or their own reputations or their ability to walk around in public at the behest uh, of NATO anymore because they're losing. And that's evident in the, the couched language there, supposed culprit. Well, again, these are G20 nations. They've been able to watch this from the outside. They remember Maidan the exact same way we remember Maidan. They know that Victoria Nuland is up to no good. And they know that she was up to no good when she popped back up and she, you know, with cookies. And they know that she was no good when she showed up in Sri Lanka a couple of weeks ago. Everywhere that that woman goes, a coup follows. So they've been looking at this and going, I don't think you're being fully honest with us when you describe the situations that created the current reality that we're in.
0: Orinoco Tribune has a fantastic article written by Alistair Crook, The, me- the Deeper Meaning of Ukraine. And this is the tagline. The wider Ukraine meaning lies in this insight other leaders are no longer naive when the West offers glass beads or paper dollars in exchange for their real riches. How powerful is that? I know who's going to tell us. Jim Cavanaugh. So,
6: glass beads and paper dollars. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, 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 and they know this. They know they've been... It, it, laboring literally and suffering under the financial hegemony of the West of the United States ultimately since World War II. Okay. And they've seen, you know, this point about the saying the Russians aren't losing, you know, the United States entered this and said, we're going to destroy the sanctions from hell. The Russian economy collapsed. No, hasn't collapsed. The Western economies are collapsing. This gives the global south nations saying, hey, not only you know, we can resist the American hegemony on this and the American line on this because we can see that we can reorient our economy. It is possible. And I think he says this in the article too. It is possible uh, for for economies and, and countries to resist the economic sanctions that the West are going to put on us. Uh, you know, so there's a there's a uh, uh, this is creating a situation which you know th- these countries are seeing that. The, That this is the kind of extension of colonialism and the Western hegemony financial, it's financial colonialism that destroys the economies, privatization, debt, 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 enslavement, etc. And they're going to fight against this now and they see that it's possible to do it. And so you're going to have a bifurcation of the world to, you know, those are going to stay with the United States and it's going to be powerful economies. But maybe that's going to break up, too. Or those who are going to go and try and build a new world economically. And it's going to be difficult. They're going to have to create new economic institutions that allow for rational and transparent trade and economic and means of payment. But that's what's happening now. And everybody's now seeing it's possible. We're not going to be crushed immediately by the United States. Russia is not being crushed, China is not being crushed. And they can't, and we we now have some place have
0: allies that will help us
5: build a new world. order. Steve, I tend to agree with Jim on this one there that you can't stop the, the fracturing of the power structure. That's already it's been underway. If you agree with Chomsky, it's been underway since the end of world war two uh, and the decline of the American empire, the American century. Um, and we're almost a hundred years out from that at this point, uh, you're at least knocking on the door of it. So it's, to, to try to watch uh, these buffoons walk around and pretend like we we don 't have an immediately new power paradigm happening under everyone 's feet that that they cannot control because they 've stretched themselves so thin to watch them deny that reality at least for me is kind of funny because i you know have three months' worth of food and i 'm okay but <laughs> but for a lot of people um it, it's gotta be. The, it's gotta be almost inducing some sort of schizophrenia because regular people walk outside every day. They see what gas costs. They see what food costs. They see that you know another nine hundred and fifty million dollars of weapons has just got approved for Ukraine. But at the same time, they can't drive over a bridge without holding their breath in the hopes that it doesn't collapse on them. So the the facts on the ground contradict with the rhetoric so much to the point to where even the mainstream media has lost its grip to keep more than 50 percent of the nation under its spell that's that's going to be a problem
0: we've been talking with jim cavanaugh he's a writer at the net and counterpunch and steve Porkin and he's a national organ- organizer for action for assange and he hosts slow news day on rockfin.com that's dot ncom you're listening to the critical hour on radio sputnik i'm garland nixon with my co-host dr wilmer leon there's more on the other side stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The danger of missing Western armaments is rising in the U.S. and the EU. Also, the White House is facing disastrous numbers amongst young voters, and inflation is growing out of control. For more on these exciting stories, we turn to Dr. Colin Campbell. He's a D.C. senior news correspondent. And Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be back. President Biden is facing a disaster with young voters, increasing fears among Democrats that they are in danger of losing a generation if he doesn't improve his standing with Generation Z. Uh, A New York times Siena uh, College poll this week found 94% of Democratic primary voters age 18 to 29 say the party should nominate someone other than Biden in 2024. We'll start with you, Ray McGovern. Well, that's not surprising.
7: I have a few uh, uh, younger generation friends of my own. Uh, I think that one of the more uh, appropriate things to focus on with Biden in the Middle East is that uh, the vast majority of young people don't agree with the uh, knee-jerk U.S. reaction to Israel diktat, Um, this is becoming clearer and clearer, and it bodes really ill for the the people who uh, try to defend Israel. And sooner or later, with a generational change, uh, the knee-jerk support for Israel will disappear. Maybe Colin, who is a lot younger than I, can uh, comment more intelligently on that.
0: Let me throw something else at you, Colin, before you before before you go, and that is this, because this just popped into my mind. Two thousand and eight. 2012, Obama wins in a blowout, and the Democrats say, we got this thing for the next 40 years. We have a coalition of young voters, and man, you're not going to beat that. Because before that, if you remember, everybody said, yeah, Obama has all these voto- these young voters, but they don't come out to vote. They'll never show up. They showed up, the Democrats won, and now— They've gone in another direction. This is a big mistake. And maybe we can talk about what's causing it and things like that. Colin Campbell, your thoughts.
8: Let's take a look at what young voters wanted to really address in the 2020 election. All right. We've got first health care. A lot of students raise concerns about the availability of affordable health care. What movements have Democrats made as far as advancing the health care agenda? Exactly. You hear that silence? (laughs) Not too much there. Okay, let's take another issue. How about the racial wealth gap? When we're looking at the racial wealth gap, something that has continued to grow from generation to generation. That hasn't changed much, e- much either. In fact, it may have actually grown, with a lot of Black Americans losing a lot of their investments and their wealth building uh, through home ownership and losing that uh, during the recession, and really never re- regaining that kind of traction or momentum that was generated. Probably, I'd say around the late 70s and the, and the early 80s, uh, before Reaganomics really started to take hold. Then, when we look at the issue of student debt, that was another big issue. Now. To the Biden administration's merit, they did uh, create some reductions when it came to student debt, but for many students, it's still not enough. A lot of students are looking for total debt uh, absolution, and I don't think that that is possible. Uh, Could it be possible? Sure. But in a neoliberal environment, when, uh, you know, in a hyper capitalist environment, which is what the U.S. is in right now, eliminating all student debt is a high. Unlike, uh, highly unlikely to happen. And I think even though that is the reality, many students were looking for that type of result. So those are the top three. Uh, then there, there's the career outlook. There are appear to be jobs. Uh, the White House says that you know, jobs are growing. Of course, all of those figures and statistics can be parsed based on those who have decided not to even uh, join into the workforce or report that they are out of the workforce, those statistics can be changed or modified uh, based on convenient reporting. And then, of course, climate change. We know that uh, right now climate change has really not been a big consideration being that fossil fuel and getting fuel to Europe and what was going to happen to the U.S. Uh, in the fall or the winter time when we need more fuel and the situation where gas prices are continuing to rise, climate change has not been a a very big uh, in capitals uh, for the agenda for the Biden administration. So when you're looking at those issues that young people really were paying attention to in 2020, and now we're in 2022 and we look at how there are really a lot more losses than wins based on the things that young people voted for, well, it kind of adds to that. It adds up. It it really uh, makes sense with the math there that a lot of young voters are growing more distrustful and have a larger distaste for the Biden administration and what they have and have not accomplished.
2: This is a bigger problem than Joe Biden. This is a, this is a party problem. Um, you, you tend to support a party or not support a party because of the rhetoric they promote and the policy they deliver. And to Garland's point about Obama, and, and uh, uh, Colin, you, you, you touched on this, folks showed up, but what did they get? Not much. So because as a party, you have to deliver to your constituents and these young people in the Democratic Party, they're not seeing it. They're not seeing it because they're not getting it. And if and so this is not only a problem for for Joe Biden, this is a problem for Kamala Harris because she has hitched her wagon to Joe Biden but it's also a problem for Elizabeth Warren, for Amy Klobuchar, for Pete Buttigieg, because if that's your bullpen, and Ray, I'm come to you, if, that, if those are the arms in your bullpen, you have no bullpen.
7: Well, I would agree. I would agree uh, completely. You know, one of the things, though, that has been not mentioned yet, and uh, since i'm no expert at all in domestic policy i don't know how it will figure but abortion abortion, Ab- abortion. absolutely no now my guess is that uh, young people will have mixed emotions about this why do i say mixed emotions i think the vast majority of them Will really, really uh, be against all these crazy Republicans that uh, have been responsible for this, including those on the Supreme Court. On the other hand, you know, you mentioned uh, that uh, Obama and Biden, you know, could have been in power for forty years, right, with a legislature that was subservient to them. What did they do about abortion? When you say not much. Into do anything. And why? Well, you know, it was crass. It was cynical. It was cowardly. They could have done it. They could have put uh, Roe versus Wade into legislation, get it passed, and they didn't. So even this abortion thing is gonna cut two ways, it seems to me. I don't know how it'll all come out in the end, but it hasn't been mentioned yet. I think it is important to young people.
2: And Colin, it is, it is very important Not only because of the issue itself, but I think it's even more important because if you look at the strategy that the Republican Party employed in order to accomplish what they've accomplished, there was a game plan here. And it was the long game. And it was not only on the federal side. They got state. They got control of state legislatures to be sure that they could control it on the state level. They got the Federalist Society to be to be sure that they selected the right justices so that when the case got to the Supreme Court they would get the ruling that they wanted. This was this was a 30 year if not longer plan that and the Democrats can't 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 plan for 30 days. Colin Campbell
8: Democrats have problems problem thinking that they are not dealing with a sinister opposition. We have to remember that when the 2020 election happened, there was talk that Roe versus Wade could be in danger. But I don't think that many Democrats believe that, um, that it would really happen, that this actually, you know, would, would swing the other way. We have to remember, too, when the nominees were interviewed, right, they said that, uh, many of them said that Roe v. Wade was established law, was the law of the land, was precedent. And so they felt in a way, many did, and definitely voters did, that even though there was an inkling that it could be under threat, that it was still going to be in place. So when these voters came to the polls in 2020 and they looked at all these other issues, Roe versus Wade wasn't one of the things on the top of their mind because that was, really wasn't uh, a big threat at the time. Now it feels like the rug was swept out from under these voters. This was a right that many of them had going into 2020, that they've been, that they've grown up with, that, that they've learned about in some way. It could have been even sex ed in, in high school or something like that. And now it's eroded. And now Democrats are left scrambling because they didn't realize the type of machinations that Republicans or conservatives would have in trying to uh, trying to take away this right for many uh, women across the country. And now the Biden administration signed into legislation, or signed a, uh, uh, um, it wasn't a law, it was actually an executive order, I believe, that um, they must provide abortion services for the life of if the mother is at risk, and that um, this is different than what the Supreme Court had ruled. So now this is one step that the Biden administration is taking, but for many it's going to fall short. Um, already there are conversations. There's a story uh, out of the Midwest about the um, the girl who was uh, apparently assaulted by a man who was 10 years old, and now they're trying to get this woman or girl, excuse me, girl, an abortion uh, based on the assault of this guy. Uh, So now we're starting to see some of the the ramifications of what can happen when uh, previous protections were in place that are not there anymore and what has to be done in order to correct those errors.
0: Well, you guys are going to be happy to know that there are areas where the two parties can come together to work and accomplish things. The House on Thursday passed its version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act that authorizes – $850.3 Eight hundred and fifty point three billion dollars for military spending, increasing President Biden's requested budget by thirty-seven billion. He asked for a certain amount, and they said, "Man, you no. Know, the answer is no. You got to take another thirty-seven billion, and off we go with this." Ray McGovern. Uh, it's not like we have any problems that we could use. You know, we couldn't spend the money on you know building infrastructure or helping people out who are hurting. Luckily. billion for the military. Oh, by the way, it passed 329 to 101. Your thoughts, Ray McGovern.
7: Well, I'm glad you mentioned this because a a budget, um, it's a moral document. It it shows what you care about. You care about money, if you care about profiteering on making, selling getting the profits from arms and giving them to legislators who in turn appropriate money for more money for buying, selling, and, you know, it's a, a, uh, you know, this the American way? Well, it has become the American way. When I say moral document, what happens to all those people who desperately need help? Poverty levels are very, very high. And uh, just think, people talk about opportunity costs, right? the economists they, they cut out well you know what could one f 35 fighter that might not work if if we spent a, a billion dollars on that let's say what could we have done with that billion dollars in school districts in Kansas and Missouri well rehabilitate the whole thing for example right so now what it comes down to here is that a lot of people are making a lot of money. And so as long as there's a lot of tension, particularly in Ukraine, and if that ever gets fixed, well, there's China, right? So this money will never get to the people who need it. And so, you know, away with the, what the Bible says about the preferential option for the poor, this is the preferential option for the rich people. And we know where the Bible comes down on that, at least the New Testament. Last thing I'll say is that the Ukraine war itself, uh, I have described as the mother of all opportunity costs. Why? Well, number one, it's using up all this, uh, you know, all this pollution, all these polluting platforms that we have. But number two, and more important, it's dividing the world in two at a time when it's existentially necessary whether the world be joined as one to fight this common threat and uh, you know as long as this thing continues not only does it divert attention from all this but th- it makes the world ex- it itself less less conducive or less uh, less amenable to fixing this problem or at least attenuating it so these are big deals and once we look at this uh, this unconscionable rage and 37 billion more, what's it for? Well, all this stuff, the coffers of people running for re-election in, in November, I mean, it's, it's really
0: so blatantly immoral uh, I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. You know, Colin, and, and you got to add this, I think, to the fact, because I hear a lot of people comp- literally complaining about the $40 billion going to Ukraine. And I'm hearing that more and more from people. Why is all that money going over there? People are struggling here. I think you have to look at this, all of this money going to the military uh, uh, industrial complex and look at that also through the lens of the um, the fall of support for the Democratic Party and for the Biden administration and his numbers go down. I may be wrong, but I think this is a contributory factor. Colin Campbell.
8: Listen, it's no, it's no um, illusion that our party, our political system has grown more partisan. So you're going to have less Republicans who are saying, OK, I want the success of America or the success of whatever program, you know, whatever, whoever is in office. It's almost like how do we try to make whomever's in office look the worst? How do we make them look, um, uh, un, you know, um, just how do we make them look in a, in a worse light than they started out? That seems to be the plan of many of the uh, lawmakers in office already. And so, when you look at it from that perspective, you can tell that whatever uh, law or whatever program the Biden administration wants to pass, that seems socially responsible, he's struggling with. However, if it's to make more money for the military-industrial complex, it's to make money for contractors. That seems to be what's passed because they themselves can benefit. They themselves can use that money that they may get or that they, or whatever influence that grows from those contracts being awarded, from that money being put into the military-industrial complex for re-election and for their own appeal to their constituents. This is the strategy that conservatives definitely have right now in Congress. It's not so much, okay, we're going to help out Americans, see if we, if what, we can, what we can do to, uh, to improve America, where we can work together with Democrats. It's really, what can we do to try to get President Biden not reelected if he decides to run? Remember that, that when Mitch McConnell... Um, said at the time that he wanted to make Obama one-term president. Although that hasn't been very outspoken for Biden, that seems to be what the strategy is regardless, you know, and if, if Biden decides to run again. So this isn't very surprising. Although, yes, the um, the money that has been authorized or that's seemingly approved is going to rile up a lot of Americans again. We're seeing homelessness rising across the country, various reports in various metropolitan areas and cities across the country reporting homelessness and shootings on the rise as inflation continues to climb. And this is an issue we talk about almost every week, and it hasn't really been improving that much. We see some gas prices going down, but the cost of food is still pretty high. You go into the grocery store. I I don't think I've gone into the grocery store within the past month without hearing at least one person exclaim at some price about something. And if it could be anything from eggs to beef to popsicles, you know what I mean? It's, It's something that has risen that people are upset with. And that's really what is facing them every day when they wake up. And when they see that billions of dollars, are going uh, that are being proposed to be sent over to Ukraine after billions have already been approved. That's not going to sit well with a lot of people.
2: You know, uh, quickly to Colin's point about McConnell's statement about Obama being a one-term president. That in and of itself, in my opinion, was not the issue because in 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 a in a adversarial political system. That's what you that's that's always your goal is to unseat your opponent. It was the obstructionist nature and tactics that Mitch McConnell and I'm trying to remember who the Speaker of the House was at the time, Newt Gingrich, I think it was, um, employed in order to see we're going to stand in the way to the detriment of the American people. To see to it that we get our way—that was the, to me, that was the real issue. But getting back to this piece about the about the um, the National Defense Authorization Act, there are, and to Ray's point about a budget being a moral document, there are a couple of amendments to this thing that I think are important to pay that are important that that, that we pay attention to. One has to do with limiting arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Uh, particularly because of, you know, Mohammed bin Salman and the head cutting and all the stuff that they're doing and and the, and the, the 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 mistreatment of of their folks and and also as it relates to Yemen. and tracking the weapons that the United States is selling and uh, how those weapons are being used, particularly, as it relates to Yemen, Ray McGovern. Those amendments to me are very telling because if you are able, and, and the other the other part of it is the repeal of the 2002 authorization for the use of the military force. Because if you're able to rein that in, then you don't need as much money, Ray McGovern.
7: Well, you're right. And that's why they'll never get in. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, these are really good points and really good amendments. Uh, and what do I know? But my guess is that these things uh, will not be palatable. Uh, Biden will come home and he said, well, now they told me not to do this. Uh, they told me that they won't pump as much oil if we, if we, if we bridle them in on Yemen. Uh, if we limit arms sales especially, we're not gonna get $1,000 more. <laughs> we're not get more oil. So I don't think these things have a prayer in getting through the people controlling this process are the people in bed with the military-industrial complex. It's as simple as that, and the American people suffer
0: as a result. As Western nations continue to funnel billions in weapons and other military hardware into Ukraine, some within the NATO bloc and EU are calling for a system to track the arms concerned they will disappear into the black market. All these weapons land in southern Poland, get shipped to the border, and then are just divided up into vehicles to cross. Trucks, vans, sometimes private cars, one of the officials said. In April, a source familiar with the transfer told CNN that the United States has almost zero ability to track weapons. After they enter Ukraine's chaotic war zone, saying they fall into a big big black hole and quickly disappear. You know, there are many people fearing that they're going to undisappear at some point all over Europe in the hands of terrorists or Nazis or other um, miscreant uh, elements. Start with you, Colin, uh, Colin Campbell.
8: Yeah, this has a, been a concern for a while. Uh, there's a meme that is passed around on social media about missing nuclear weapons as well. And uh, this is a rising concern, I would think, among military intelligence in the United States. At the same time, I could see this being the fodder for many uh, Netflix movies coming up in upcoming futures where you have missing nuclear weapons or missing weaponry that somebody has to track down. So this will be interesting to see what the U.S. reaction is going to be in trying to recover these or find out who's going to be controlling them or where they're falling. Even though it's very difficult, uh, I would think that the Biden administration would still allocate resources to finding these weapons and to to tracking them down. Uh, I'm not sure how they would do that. My, my understanding of, of trying to, uh, exercise that is very low. But I would think that, of course, this is a rising concern. And of course, they don't want to be used on uh, NATO allies because that could launch the U.S. into war. They don't want to be used. uh, They don't want these weapons to be used on the U.S. either. So, yes, definitely a concern. And um, we'll see. We'll have to see how the administration
7: responds to that.
0: Ray McGovern.
7: Well, this is Afghanistan redux. Uh, you know from the special investigations that went on after Afghanistan and during it that there was no control at all over the weapons that were were being used there. Uh, when this legislation was passed, Rand Paul, to his credit, insisted on delaying it until such time as they put in a provision to track where these where these weapons end up now. Uh, that was defeated. Defeated by whom? Uh, defeated by those who are fed by the military-industrial complex. Okay, so the legislation went forward without any formal requirement to monitor where these things end up. Now, Europe is getting a little itsy kitsy about this. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're going to end up with terrorists in, in Italy and in Spain before they end up in the United States, and so. Uh, even the Financial Times is saying, whoa, uh, the Europeans want want something done about this. And so as a sop to this, the Ukrainians, uh, official just, well, just Thursday, yeah, just yesterday, he's all going to create a commission, and uh, we'll look into it. Uh, I'll suggest, says this, actually, he's the head of uh, Zelensky's office, Andrei Yermak. He says, quote, I would like to suggest to the people's deputies uh, that they consider this idea creating a temporary a temporary special commission uh, which would consider the issues about control over what happens to these weapons once they're received, end quote. Whoa, isn't that interesting? Well, these guys in parliament are as corrupt as anybody else. They're probably on the take selling these weapons to the highest bidder. So, yeah. It's a real problem. It's going to come back to bite Europe in this case, as it did come back to bite, do you remember ISIS? Uh, do you remember <laughs> those folks? You remember when this highly trained Iraqi army that David Petraeus was crowing about, uh, as soon as they faced the real threat from these insurgents, <laughs> they threw down their weapons and they ran away? Guess what? There were people very happy about that. Who was that? Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, they had to replace the weapons. And that's what's going on in Ukraine right now. So, you know, to quote Oliver North, you know, is this a great country or what?
0: You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf half of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all Monday right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.